And I think that KPIs screw businesses up. If you wait to, you know, today it's the 31st of, of May, you'll see a whole bunch of janky emails go out because people are trying to meet the revenue goals. All the KPIs kill businesses, the lack of patience and the, you know, failure to see long-term. And I think that's the thing that keeps popping up for when people start focusing on retention and LTV by the time they got there, it's always the management of the business. It's looking to hire a retention consultant. Like I get approached all the time. Can you help fix my retention? And you're like, you have a six person growth team, but you don't have a single person on retention. And you've been squeezing dollars out of wallets for the last year and a half. Hiring one consultant is not going to fix it because retention is a brand thing. Welcome to Ad Creative, a new show from Pencil about the unexpected ideas that have changed the game for D2C founders and operators with a focus on actionable takeaways. I'm Chase Moseni. Thanks for joining us. This week, I have the pleasure of chatting with Eli Weiss, Senior Director of Customer Experience at Jones Road Beauty. We focus on his unique route to the world of D2C and why imposter syndrome is a part of everyone's day-to-day life, how automation in the world of CX has gone too far, and how it's time to bring back human-to-customer interactions. We also dive into how KPIs can kill companies and how focusing on things that don't scale can lead to massive upside. Eli taught me a lot on this one, and I think it can apply to almost any business line, since we all are customer experience, right? I hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, I'm really excited to have Eli Weiss, Senior Director of Customer Experience at Jones Road Beauty on Ad Creative today. Thanks for joining us, Eli. Thanks for having me, Chase. Yeah, really excited to dive into this conversation. I know you you just started a newsletter, and I, I think it's, first of all, everyone should just read it because there's incredible value even through the first couple. I've already, you know, taken some stuff on the B2B side and like gone and implemented it. So first of all, thanks for doing that. And we'll link it in the show notes. You know, I, I think your journey is really interesting. I always ask founders, like, how did you get here? What's What was the idea for the business? And you kind of talked about how growing up in an Orthodox family and going into New York to um, study the Talmud, that was kind of the entry point into this whole world because you were doing a lot of stuff different than the other students were. So I'm curious about that journey a little bit and how that led here, because you said something in your first newsletter that I thought was wild, which is you went into a Chase Bank and asked the manager, like, how do I do this? And I was really interested in that kernel. Like, what was the thing you asked him to do? And kind of what did you learn in that year from him specifically that allowed you to kind of go on this journey of traveling, living in Israel, being able to, you know, do all of this stuff. So thought we'd start there, if that's okay. Yeah. Well, a few things. First of all, thank you so much for your kind words about the newsletter. I've I've been so distraught about like, do I do this? Do I not do this? Would people find it interesting? And and when I finally did pull through with it, it's been so humbling to see the amount of people that are interested in, in obviously customer experience, but also in my own story, which has been something that I kind of hid behind for the last 10 years. You know, like you mentioned, I, I grew up in this Orthodox world. I'm number two of 10 children, definitely a very, very family oriented world, kind of similar to any, any other intense, you know, fractions of, of the religious universe. Grew up with, there was pretty much, it was it was one way, right? It was you stay in the box, you do things the, the correct way. And, and if you're out of the box, you're kind of a loser, right? So it's like, there, there isn't much success outside of the realm of orthodoxy for, for the average person. What was interesting to me early on was human behavioral psychology. I think I was always excited about the way people think. And, and growing up, I thought you're either charismatic and great with people or you're not good with people and you don't understand humans at all. What I learned 
at a, in my early teens was that I was really my leg up on conversation was understanding conversation, almost like a ping pong. Like I understood a couple of, a couple of frames ahead in your movie making world, right? Like I always, I always understood where the ball was going and was able to kind of like reverse engineer conversations that way to get what I needed to do as a, as a very, very young teenager that came, that came across in manipulative tactics to get what I wanted. But I think as I started getting older, you know, I think 14, 15, 16, I started kind of looking, looking outside of the world I was in and trying to learn about the universe. And I say this often, but Reddit was where I learned about the world, which is mostly the worst place to learn about the universe. So, you know, came across people traveling and I grew up in New Jersey, was in New York because my grandparents lived there. And this is a family of Holocaust survivors, didn't really travel much, right? You kind of stayed where you were. I'm and I was just excited about humans and very intrigued to how humans work. So I've read, you know, like the Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People at a Very Early Age, found influenced by Cialdini in my early teens and was just excited about that. And then I was friends with a lot of people that were two, three, four years older than me. And it was seeing that people were traveling for free with points and miles. I remember the summer of 15 years old, I had my, you know, I have one older brother. He was a year and a half older than me. And we told my parents instead of going to a sleepaway camp, give us some of the money and we'll travel with it. And we, we ended up negotiating, I think it was 400 or $500 for my parents. And we put together a couple of friends and we drove across country over four weeks. We started in, in New Jersey and ended up getting all the way to LA and flying back and was just, you know, driving through Iowa and Nebraska and just like learning about how humans are pretty much the same. Like they look differently, they talk differently, but they're pretty much, they're all pretty similar. And then was like, how do I take this international? <laughs> so when I moved to New York at the age of 18, still, you know, very much practicing in that world, I walked into a Chase Bank and I said, I know that there's a universe where people build credit pretty quickly in a, in a legal way. Can you teach me about credit? And he said, what do you mean by that? Uh, and I said, well, I want to travel the world. And I know that there's a lot of, like, there's a universe of people that, that churn credit cards. But I think that there's probably for somebody that had zero credit, like I had zero, I had nothing, uh, what they call in that world a thin file. I said, like, if I gave you a year, can you help me turn this into something? And he pretty much was like, that's kind of fucking weird, but sure. And we had a conversation and I kind of touched base with him. His name was, was Matt. And we, over a year and a half, I put together over a million miles and told my parents I was going to study in Israel. And the rest is kind of history. So instead of a traditional high school, you know, I was studying the Talmud, you know, I had no secular high school education. My, my math was at eighth grade level. And then instead of college, I was traveling the world and kind of did my GED diploma equivalent in my early 20s. But really a ton of, you know, I traveled to 34 countries uh, by the time I was like 21, 22. And then it was like, okay, how do I, my whole goal was breaking into the, into the real world. And yeah, I, I got very lucky. Uh, you know, I can take credit for some of the resourcefulness, but a ton of luck. But that's the gist of it. Yeah, I always find people who have, have done well are very humble about the luck. And yeah, you need to find right people at the right time. But I think you need to almost be a bit of a pointed spear towards those people as well. So I, I thank you for being humble, but also, you know, take some credit. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting because obviously we'll get into some tactics about customer experience. I'm always really fascinated by... So I've traveled pretty extensively. And like you said, it's really interesting because you go to Asia, you go to the Middle East, you go to South America, everyone is the same. They just want to be happy and live a good life. And 
their inputs are different, right? Okay, so Middle East, maybe they're having kebab and moussaka or something, you know, uh, yeah. down in the South America, they're having uh, like fajitas or, you know, everything is different. But, you know, I, I come from a, a pretty racially diverse background. So my mom is black, my dad is Persian, and my wife is, is Mexican. So like, we have a lot of cultures kind of flowing around. Everyone is the exact same. Um, it's mm. just, what do you eat? What do you call things? Like, what is your shared cultural, like visual experiences? What are the movies? What's music? But have you found that having that understanding of like at a base level, everyone is the same has helped you in your career being able to essentially like internally market to customers, how important, you know, you know, the products are that you're, you're trying to solve for them. Yeah, I think I think it's a great point. And a lot of like my earlier kind of my imposter syndrome and and my fear of people seeing that I'm not who I could be or should be in the roles I'm I'm working in has been like, you know, maybe you just got lucky that you're good at helping customers in the realm of suitcases. Like maybe food and beverage is gonna out you, whether you're gonna be like, oh, I can't figure this out. Like you've unlocked this retention technique when it comes to like high AOV, low LTV product, but when it comes to like pushing people at Olipop to buy a soda every two weeks, there you'll break. And I've always kind of challenged myself to like, I will do it in every, like I went from luggage to food and beverage to beauty, right? And I am excited about a world where I end up in fintech and SaaS and God knows where, where else. But I think your point is, is 100% right that what customers are looking for broadly across the entire universe, across B2B, B2C is validation and understanding, right? And I think what we find brands kind of skirt around is going this, and I talk about this often, this like above and beyond versus meeting baseline expectations. And customers, like, we find this pretty often where you'll go, you know, a customer will be like, hey, where's my shit? And you'll be like, here's a full refund. And they're like, I want the stuff. I never asked for a refund. What they really want is to be understood, validated. And somebody say like, hey, I'd be just as frustrated if I bought a $35 12 pack of soda and it took two weeks to get there. Like it totally makes sense. And I'm so sorry. And whether we compensate or not compensate, I think it's about the validation and, and the rest of that at the front end. Yeah, I mean, I can completely agree with that. I, I uh, My wife is a card-carrying member of like the return the return squad. I don't know what I have to call it <laughs> online, but like she'll buy anything and return it. And I always say like, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, the money is whatever. If something doesn't go right, understand that, you know, I'm a human having a human experience. Yes, I'm a data point on your chart. But like, there's a human being who's having a very unique experience. And like, so whenever I get on a call with a customer service person, my wife always jokes, she's like, you're always asking them how they are, how's their day going? She's like, just get to the end of the end of the conversation. You need something like, dude, they're a person. And if I need help, I should understand that maybe they got yelled at by the last person. They don't need to be yelled at by me. So yeah, I think that's definite. uh, That's definite thing. I wonder from you, how many experiments, because like there is that understanding of people but also there is the i'm going to overcomplicate this and overthink this and like go data heavy on this before i understand that like it's not a data thing it is a human thing and then we layer the data on afterwards so it's like instead of going qualitative first and then layer on quantitative we kind of flip it always how long did it take you to come to that realization this comes up in my professional life probably once a week um where i'll talk to brands and the funniest one is something actually this week, it would be awkward if this podcast gets back to them. But there was a brand that I was talking to a while back about a potential role. And I, this was at, while I was at Olipop, it was in the fintech world. And I got to like final stages of interviews and everyone 
that I spoke to, I knew it went really well. And we got all the way to the finish line and pretty much like I understood the CEO was looking for somebody that was, you know, had that decade plus of experience and in, in creating processes and efficiency and, and all that, all that boring stuff. And I am, I call myself the polar opposite of that. Like I, I, I hate spreadsheets. I, I like going with my heart. Obviously it has, the data has to match. Like we can't just predict shit, but I'm not that person when I'm setting up a team. I'm, I'm looking, like you said, the qualitative side, like I want to make this feel right. And a year later, you know, I got in touch with them and they're kind of regretting that they chose the efficient person because now it's like they have quick response times, but their their customer sentiment is not quite there. And I think it's like, how many times did I go through it? I think for me, it was early on in my experience where I, I, I always would rather feel like I'm talking to a human versus get a response five times faster. And I think most of what I preach in the world of customer experience stems from me being an obnoxious customer. I absolutely hate spending money on a product and not feeling like I'm individual, like a unique and an individual person experiencing it in their own way. And I think what we've seen across customer experience as a whole, right? It's like the customer service versus customer experience has been, there's been this movement towards AI. Like if I see one more AI tool fixing customer service nightmares, I'm probably just going to toss my computer at the door because it's like, there's enough AI. Like at this point, we need the human back in it. And that's what I keep preaching is like, yeah, we'll figure out how to efficient, you know, make things efficient as we go along. But I think the AI and like hand responses and macros universe has taken customer experience and kind of pushed it right back to the customer service reactive BS, where it's like this consistent efficiency operation versus like the heart and soul. And we talk about this often at Jones Road and and, and Olipop focused on it the same way where customer experience or customer service, whatever you call it, is a brand building part of the business. It's, you know, like when we think about, yeah, and I'm, I have like a whole bunch in the newsletter this week to talk about that. But when we talk about like, is it, does it make sense, right? Like I'm spending $10,000 a month on CX. Does it make sense? Like, yeah, it has to back out somehow in the numbers, but it's not a today play. It's an LTV play and it's a brand play. And I think it's, it's the way you feel. We talk about this often in regards to like, you know, think about the the biggest success in this realm is probably Zappos, right? It's like the same exact shoes that you'll buy at shoes.com you're willing to pay $2 more because you know that if you have something go wrong, they're there to help you. And, and that's the brand piece where you won't even check on shoes.com because you're going to go straight to Zappos because you know in the 4% possibility that there is an issue, they got your back. And that's what we're trying to build in the beauty world is like, we want customers, you know, buying makeup online is super difficult, right? It's like, there's a very large chance you won't get what you want. But if you buy a Jones Road and you don't like it or you don't get what you want, you can not only return it, but you can keep the product. So it's like, how is that? How does that make sense for us? Well, in the scheme of things, we have very few people that are unhappy. So it's it's making sense. And if it if we got to a point where it doesn't make sense, we'll we'll switch that up. But I think it's you know putting customer first as as the default is what I always think about. It's funny you mentioned that as a, it's a brand channel. I almost think it's it's a growth channel as well because it drives a huge amount of word of mouth and virality, which is like. I've seen it actually on Twitter where people say Jones Road, they're amazing. They, you know, they just gave me this and they took care of me, et cetera. And they'll post like a picture of what your your team posted on there. And like that's you can't even you can't buy that, right? Like you could, but it's not gonna be as personal, it's not gonna feel as organic. And so yeah, I, I totally understand. I mean, I've been seeing kind of there's, you know, there was product-led growth, there's obviously paid-led growth. And I think there's there's two kind of ones that are coming. One, I think, is more at the fore right now, which is like community-led growth. Um, it's very, very um, 
like on the tip of everyone's tongue, although I don't think people really get what that means. <laughs> Customer-led growth, which is mind-boggling that it's not actually a thing, I think is going to be one of the next waves where people, like everyone is going to, like you said, rebel against AI, which is funny coming from a person who works at an AI company. But I definitely think in this space that that's coming. I, it, this leads me to one really, really interesting, not interesting one, but just something I always find fascinating. What do people think you do? Because you're saying customer service versus customer experience. And I think they're completely different things because it's like a, I think it's a mindset thing for the team. But I would love to understand how you position that to your team because I think customer experience is kind of like you said, it's the, it's the wave of the future, bringing the human back into the process because you can always make things more efficient, but you can't make things more personal through that efficiency. Yeah. So how do you delineate between the two? Well, when you ask... What do people think I do? The first people I think about are my parents and they have no idea why I'm getting paid what I'm getting paid to do the things I do. They're like, you're just answering emails. My in-laws probably feel similar. When I talk about, you know, we talk about this often, like the difference between customer experience, customer service, customer service being this very reactive measure where like, where's my shit? Here's the response. Customer experience being this like proactive, looking at all the you know, touch points in the customer journey and thinking like, are we delivering on what we promise? And I think obviously when I started in the CPG world six, seven, eight, nine years ago, CX was very, very unsexy. And it came, I think from my perspective, it came from this like SaaS CSM world where it's like, oh, we should pay people. CSMs were getting paid six figures when customer service people were getting paid 25K. But the idea was like, how can we potentially work on investing in retention before customers leave um, and proactively kind of like make sure they're sticking around. When I talk to my team, it's it's constantly selling the idea of like, we are the voice of the customer in the organization from the internal perspective. Like we are the customer voice in every conversation across the business, but also we are the brand. Like when somebody says like, how does Jones Road make me feel? They're talking about our team, right? It's the way we reply on social. Like our team at Jones Road is doing all things all things community and, and and social engagement too. So it's like the way we make people feel when we reply to a TikTok comment, the way we make people feel on on Facebook. And it's like the way we view the messaging on on email. I think something that's slept on very often is like we have this, you know, brands are so obsessive about the the voice of the brand and they are obsessive about every email and the PDP copy and all that. But when it comes to CX, they outsource it to the Philippines for $3 an hour. Not that that's a bad thing, but if a customer reaches out and doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like it's the same person, it's just not cohesive, right? When you reach out to Jones Road, the email response feels like Jones Road because we're talking the same way the brand talks, right? Like we, it's obviously different because every person's different and we're not sending canned responses and we, we appreciate when people go out and talk in their own tone of voice, but it feels like a cohesive touch point. And I think that brands focus on this like external sales piece but when somebody reaches out to customer service they're pissed off right and it's like focusing on the tone there is so important but uh, a whole lot of rambling and 60 seconds later to answer the 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 answer to your question is i i explained the difference is we are the part of the business that can make or break a brand and and you know we go through nps scores and we can see that so many people are mentioning the customer service and like my biggest motivation is sharing that throughout the team all the time, right? It's like, look at the impact we're making. But yeah. So when I came to Pencil, I'm running the CS team and came from a completely different world because I'm, I'm a growth guy. And the thing I had to learn was essentially that, which is there are people and then there's charts and you need to balance both things and synthesize them. And 
you can't, you need your charts, but essentially like one customer being happy and learning how to do that again and again and again individually is more valuable than us saying like, hey, here's how it's flowing in the chart. Look, the activation is great this week. We've done it because we've layered in this automated experiment. Need those, absolutely. But you almost need the qualitative feedback loop more often. And so this leads me to uh, something you wrote in the first newsletter, which was about a hypothesis you had at the first, at the luggage company, which was, you know, customers want to be co-founders. And so I was curious kind of, when you're working with co-founders or, or internal teams, there's you know radical transparency. Is that something that you've kind of carried over to be like overly transparent with a customer, bring them into the process? Or has that changed kind of company to company? Do you think that's a product-based thing or is that just like wholesale? That's something that you believe completely is bring them in to the process so that they feel like they are kind of building this thing with you. I think it's a it's a good question, right? So it's, you know, when I was at this luggage company, they were a Kickstarter brand. So I think there's that. Thing to to think about, right? It's where they are investing in a product that doesn't yet exist, and they waited over two years to get the products. So I think there's when somebody invests pre-product, they're looking to feel like they're part of the building of the brand. You know, I, I kind of think about this when when parents bring guests into the house and they run around the house cleaning every single room versus closing the door. I think about it that way, right? It's like you you want to show customers the way you're building the brand, but you don't have to show them the dirty bedrooms. So we think about it that way. It's like we want to include people in the creation of a brand, especially when it's an early stage startup. We don't want to get too granular to show, you know, like, hey, here's how we messed up. And and certain brands do it and do it quite well. Like if you think about midday squares, right? They they they've thought about this in, a, in an entirely different way, and they're documenting every failure. And it, it feels on brand because it's something they've done since day one. I think if a very buttoned up brand like. For example, Rothy's started doing that tomorrow. I think it would come off it would come off very weird. So I think it does it does depend on brand and where they are in their mission. So obviously, you've learned a lot across a bunch of different uh, you know handful of companies, and plus working with other companies to help them build out their their CS function and understanding how to deliver that. What have been some of the kind of top things you found have changed? the trajectory of a company's, you know, mission in terms of you talked about, you know, we're the brand builders, essentially, we're the we have the ability to like pull that lever of brand, what have been a few things because obviously, it's, it's unique to every brand and every kind of experience. But I'm sure there are through lines that you can see across all the stories, right? Like what have been some of the ones you've seen change the game for people? I think that brands that build in public are always impactful, but I think operators that bring in, build in public is a whole different level. I think that when a brand shares built, you know, when a brand builds in public, a lot of it is very over edited and just like they're sharing their wins. And it's like, here's what we did to get into Kroger. And you're like, it just feels very, very, um, you know, made up and not always genuine. I am personally obsessed with building in public as an operator. And it's something that I've tried to do for the last couple of years because it's, it a holds myself accountable to like if I'm saying like hey I'm going to try to do this next week and and share my wins or my failures and I think it's brands it's funny because in the last like two to three years brands have been more excited about it but five six years ago when people were sharing what they were doing on social brands would be like you're sharing our secrets and now you know I think about it as like if anyone is excited enough about CX to go sign up with like retently for NPS and alloy and start looping them in together and shade matching and all that, like that's great for this ecosystem. Like they're not taking away our customers by offering shade matching. And I, there's almost nothing outside of like 
numbers or things like that, that I can't share. There's almost nothing that I don't want to share with people in, in hopes that it inspires them or in hopes that they love our brand a little bit more because we're thinking about things differently. So I think that's the thing I've learned over the last couple of years is just wanting to share more, not in this overly articulated, you know, kind of like heavily designed aspect, but more of like, here's what we're trying to do. But yeah, I don't know if that answers your question completely. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think you've seen an opening of, I don't want to say the funnel. That's that's a weird way to say it, but essentially like an opening of the doors. I think everyone was trying to bifurcate like their systems for a long time. And I mean, I talk about this a lot, which is everyone can do everything. I can go build, like I can go formulate makeup tomorrow, but like, I don't have any unique, I don't have a brand. I don't have any kind of unique thing that I can sell. And so your, your creativity and the way that you communicate that with your customers, both externally and internally with the customers you're talking to on the CX side is what makes you special because that's the only thing you really have control of that isn't repeatable by anybody else. And so like that is a moat for the business specifically. And so there's nothing wrong with sharing all the tactics, right? Because they're going to have to go and apply to their business and figure out a way to make it unique and sellable. And that's the, that's the difference. So yeah, totally, totally agree with that. What hacks have you been seeing people try or, or stuff that you think are really underutilized right now? Because it's funny, you know, you essentially find someone say something and then you can go and filter down through Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever by the you know, hashtag or, or word and you'll start seeing like, oh, this is buzzy right now. But then there are a bunch of blue ocean stuff that people don't pay attention to. And it's like, these are the things you should be doing, friend. So what have yeah. you been excited about that you think people don't pay attention to enough? I mean, I, I'd say in the in the CX side of things, it's pretty predictable, right? Like doing things that don't scale and, and focusing yeah. on the way people feel instead of like process. You know, I think process is important, but not if it gets in the way of the way people feel. Uh, yeah. On the retention side, I think what, what I've seen spoken about, but very few brands do well is the less is more, right? Like segmentation, instead of trying to get a message to everyone, try to get the right message to the right person at the right time. And we've seen this time and time again, where brands, they do this like, Mickey hacky ways to grow their list, essentially like, oh, we'll do like a joint giveaway and I'll get 10,000 email addresses of people that just want to win an award, that want to win this giveaway, don't actually want my product or have any interest. And then you just create this massive monster list. And then you slowly, you slowly realize that none of these people are interested and they're not opening it and it just dumbs down your entire list. And then you kind of like, okay, 90 day engaged, 30 day engaged, and you're back to square one because nobody's engaging versus what we've done at Jones Road where like every single person, I mean, we have like a 50 something percent open rate on every single email because the people that we're reaching out to haven't come from any hack place. Like they're not, you know, they signed up because they're interested in Jones Road for Jones Road products or they've gone through our quiz when they signed up at the beginning of the website. And I think that's been something that I've been screaming nonstop, but most brands just spray and pray. So I think that's the biggest, like, I guess, hack that people aren't focused on. Do you think that comes from, because I mean, you're in this world, you talk to founders, there's so much stuff to do. Like there's so many channels and there's only so much a person can do at one time. And everyone gets focused on my product and my acquisition. Understood, right? You need a top, you need a really healthy top of funnel and you need your product to be killer so that people buy. You know, retention is the power plan of your business. You need to be able to depend on a certain amount of business coming in. How do people deal with that? Because like you, you know, you have your team that's focused on one specific part of the business. There's other people focused on acquisition, there's other people focused on formulations, etc. How does someone who you know has 25% of that team or 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 is just a solopreneur 
do that, essentially be able to do that at a really, really you know high level to be able to grow the business meaningfully? Like, how do you look at that? I think the two biggest problems when it comes to these issues popping up are greed and lack of patience. I think that front end of the business, especially on acquisition, they just go for, they go for the kill and they go for how can I, you know, the cross sales and the upsells, how can I squeeze as much money as I possibly can when this, you know, when this customer's wallet is still open. So let's squeeze more out on the AOV. Let's squeeze more out on the upsell. And, you know, in the first 10 days, I want to see if I can double my X. And there's so much to get as much as they can, but retention is a patience game. It's a long-term game. It's an LTV play. And I think that doesn't mean to just sit and fuck around and wait for customers to come back. But I think it, it means that you're not front loading, you know, like so much of, of acquisition when you go crazy on upselling, it's just front loading revenue. You're just getting more of the revenue up front because you're offering them the 60% off discount if they bund- if they bundle up. And it's like, that doesn't, you know, they could have purchased that at a much healthier margin in two weeks. And yeah, you don't know that, but you can maybe test it and figure it out. And I think that KPIs screw businesses up. If you wait to, you know, today it's the 31st of, of, of May, you'll see a whole bunch of janky emails go out because people are trying to meet the revenue goals. All the KPIs kill people kill businesses, the lack of patience and the you know failure to see long-term. Um, and I think that's the thing that keeps popping up for when people start focusing on retention and LTV by the time they got there, it's always the management of the business that's looking to hire a retention consultant. Like I get approached all the time, can you help fix my retention? And you're like, you have a six-person growth team, but you don't have a single person on retention. You've been squeezing dollars out of wallets for the last year and a half hiring one consultant is not going to fix it because retention is a brand thing. It's does somebody feel great about your product and the experience they had with your brand? If so, why wouldn't they come back? If you think your product is the shit and it's replenishable, I mean, like I don't buy the idea that people aren't coming back because they forgot. I don't buy it. I think if a product is, is something that you're using on a day-to-day basis, if it's something that you're eating, drinking, or using on your face or if it's anything that you're using, right, on a, on a CPG product, if the product's good enough and the experience is good enough, there's no reason for you not to come back. I don't buy the forgot about it. So I think the reason why they're not coming back is because maybe your product's not as great. Or maybe you just squeeze way too much money out of them and they don't feel great about your brand because they're like, oh, I spent $80 for, I don't know, protein powder and it's not making me feel the way I wanted to feel. Maybe if they spent $36 and used it for a month and then came back, they feel better about it. But we... We as marketers hate the idea of waiting for cash. We'd rather cash today. And I think that's the degradation of, of marketing. And it's one of the biggest reasons why I joined Jones Road is because Cody is one of the only growth marketers I know that thinks about acquisition that way. Like we want a healthy AOV, but not if it's going to cost us our entire LTV, right? Like we, we want to get money up front, but we want to do it in a profitable way that makes sense. We'd rather acquire, we'd rather spend more money to acquire a customer that has potential to stick around for a long term. Versus go for cheap clicks, get that customer and never see them again because we think LTV is brand. And I think that's the the problem at its core. And you're, you're catching me ranting because this is something I'm <laughs> ever so passionate about. I, no, it's it's great. I, it's great. I think uh, KPIs kill brands is uh, is is going to be the byline on this one because I think it, it's so it's it's Put it on a t-shirt, one. Chase. Oh, literally. I think. Uh, well, I think that get get it on the hat. Uh, <laughs> I caught Barry the other day and he was wearing uh, Make Ugly Ads. So the KPIs Kill Brands is going to be the next one. I think one thing you mentioned about about growth teams. And so I was talking to, I come from like uh, tech growth. And so DDC growth and tech growth are kind of different in the way that they look at it. And so DDC growth is just performance marketing, right? It's like, okay, let's just get as many people in. 
A holistic growth team is thinking about the entire funnel. How do I expand the LTV of a customer? And it's like, like it's acquisition marketing, it's remarketing, and then it is life cycle. There's a multitude of channels, but there's a whole team and they're working as one organism to make sure that you expand the LTV. And so when I talk to a lot of DTC growth marketers, I'm doing quote unquote, like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're growing the business. Like, no, you're not. You're just making the, the funnel perform. Growing the business means how do I ex- like extend the LTV? How do I get them to have higher net sentiment? All of the things we're, we're talking about. So I think that's the first thing that needs to really be reconfigured in the space just in general. Uh, I think that's like 100% needs to happen. I, I mean, I think the other one is we all, so I like, I got a bunch of those the text messages this morning to get it done. And I think it's a recalibration of both the teams, but also the goals in general. And I have found, and I mean, this is, it's a funny time to be talking about this in general because of the headwinds that are coming in the market and everyone is focused on how do I make my first purchase profitable. And I think the big one is to step back and again, look at it holistically. Your customer can be profitable in, you know, say the first 90 days if you set up the flow properly. And if you focus on that 90 days is my goal. But if you're going and you're being completely, completely like you're going just attacking that first purchase, like you're always going to have a problem. And I, we were talking about it on that Twitter thread the other day. We were talking about shirts. Um, you were looking for, for a great shirt. How many people came and were like vigorously putting up their, sh- their shirt of choice? I was dropping Viore Mason. Cody agreed with me. But then people were coming in with other, you know, they had a bunch of other great options, right? Cuts you know, and, and, and like a, a whole list of other ones. That's because each one of those brands did a great job of making you feel great. Plus they had a great product to double down with that. I've got an order of your yep. last hat is from that order from you guys getting me to buy stuff on <laughs> that thread. I think that there is, there is something to be said there, which is if you focus on just making the most out of it, and I, I can actually speak to a lot of those brands you're talking about, if you go and do an audit of their process, they don't try to upsell you. None of them do actually. Mm-hmm. Like, that would be a fun, that'd be a fun exercise to go through that and just say, well, who does that? None of them do. But then you go through other ones. And I mean, I, I had one yesterday. I won't mention it here because I don't want to talk shit. But like I went to go cancel and an upsell pop-up, not even just the flow, an upsell pop-up came up. I'm like, dude, this is a cancel While flow. You're canceling. <laughs> yeah, this is not a an upsell flow. This is, hey, let me give you a discount to stick around. I cook out of that. The next box is, oh, you want you know 15% off to stick around. You're like, dude, come on. This is just simple mathematics, okay? You don't add this into this flow. Like you just put a negative keyword here so this thing doesn't pop up. And so, yeah, I think you're, I think you're dead on. KPIs are killing businesses because they're not thinking about the customer. They're thinking about their chart. And that's the, the work you can do. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that, that I think about very often is incentivization of of agency partners, right? It's like we we hire growth partners and agencies or freelancers and and we very straightforward tell them acquire as many customers as you can at this low CPC cap, whatever number or KPI you come up with, and you're incentivizing people to go for the cheapest click. And you're not necessarily getting quality customers. Now what's a quality customer, right? It's like it, it shouldn't every customer be the same? No, absolutely not. Because if you if you're Viore and you targeted somebody 87 times for a t-shirt and offer them the craziest discount every single day for six weeks, eventually it'll crack them. Does that mean that they'll like the product? Not necessarily. Now, the flip of that is like, you know, a, a better way of thinking about it, for example, in, in our beauty world is like, 
we can acquire a customer with a discount and they'll come in and they will have no idea what they purchased. And we had the same thing at Olipop where the people that used to purchase right off the bat without knowing any information about the fiber or the benefits of the product would never repurchase because they bought it thinking it would taste five times as good because it was five times as expensive. And they never came back because they were like, oh, this is not five times as good. People that went through a longer consideration journey in their, in their pre-purchase where they're like, oh, here's why the product is expensive. Here's the And with makeup, it's the same way. When people go through the quiz or they get shade matched and they've like actually made the decision on their own to purchase and they know how to use it if their skin is oily and how to use it if their skin is dry, they end up sticking around because they went and not feeling like they're sold to, right? You know, the thing that we think about as, as humans, it's an interesting behavioral psychology thing. It's like, everyone is embarrassed to say what they bought from a swipe up on Instagram, but nobody is ever embarrassed to say they bought something on Google because most of the time they feel like they've searched for it, right? And it's like, oh, it was a promoted thing, but you never say that. You're like, oh, I was looking for t-shirts and it came up on top. For some reason on, on a swipe up, you're always like, oh, and forget about TikTok. Nobody even says that they, that they bought something on TikTok, but it's because of that, right? It's like people don't want to feel sold to. They want to feel like they as humans made that decision and putting people through this consideration journey where they learn about your product is never a bad thing, but most marketers would rather not because it costs more money to acquire that customer. So there's this obsession to think about dollars today versus cultivating longer lasting relationships to focus on LTV. And the other thing I'd say, the last thing I'd say is like LTV is your brand play. LTV is where people, people that are screaming about Viore didn't buy Viore a week ago and wear it once. They've been hearing about Viore from all their friends for weeks, right? So it's like when you become that long-term customer and you're obsessed with brand, you need to be obsessed with brand to be able to start telling everyone about it. And usually that's on the L-shaped curve of, of LTV. So I think the brands that go for this one-time purchase end up cutting off word of mouth and, and it's a degradation for a brand. But again, like two years ago, most brands were just going for a quick exit. Today, on the other hand, and, and the tailwinds we're seeing now, it's like that super quick exit is, is less to be expected. And I do think, you know, my, my take is I, I think we'll start seeing a squeeze of brands that are focusing very, very heavily on, on just cheap CAC or going to struggle. So you just talked about something I think is really like important for people to think about. So we always talk about removing friction from an experience. Don't make it hard for them. Make them, you know, get them closer to purchase as quickly as possible. You just said like, hey, we need to add a quiz so that they know what they're doing. We need to get them to see the, you know, consider the brand three to five times before they purchase because we know that's the long-term effects. And I think something that is not talked about enough is good friction. How do you get people to understand what we're building here, why it matters, why it's different? So I was talking to Ron the other day from Avi, and he was talking about how they actively chose to put a bunch of different ingredients in the collagen that didn't exist in anyone else. And it helps kind of help. There's like the the benefits are myriad, but you have to go and tell people that it's different. And so packaging helps people say like, this is different and they can check the label and say like, oh shit, next to ancient, you know, ancient nutrition, this is completely different, right? The absorption rate, all the different things that are there, it like it really takes it to the next level. And so I think adding good friction is something that we all need to almost start be screaming at the top of our lungs. So like, you know, hey, go use Octane AI to add in some some quizzes to be able to make sure that people know why this is important. You guys are obviously doing quizzes to do that. Have you seen once you layered those things in, like, first of all, obviously, like there's obviously first purchase AOV, but also you start seeing kind of the breadth of the LTV of a customer expand. Is that something you saw kind of like a direct correlation to? I mean, Chase, we are seeing higher scores across any metric you can track. I mean, both on the, you know, I'd say both on the quiz 
and even higher on people that get shade matched through our CX team. Higher AOV, higher LTV. I mean, like I shared this on Twitter the other day, but I mean, on 90 day LTV, we're seeing like, I think it's 75% higher with people that get shade matched through our team. On a six month LTV, it's 90 something percent higher. And today I checked, I was just actually doing this for a marketing meeting. Our NPS scores are about 20 points higher for people that go through a quiz. That means the feeling they have about our brand is significantly higher, whether they go through this friction point of making sure. And the logic is they know that they, they feel good about the decision they made. But I, I've never seen that in my career to have such amazingly higher, I mean, like 20 plus points higher on NPS, meaning how likely are they to refer this brand to a friend is significantly higher when they go through a quiz or get shade matched by our team. And if that doesn't make a case on putting friction before the funnel, for specific, I mean, before purchase for specific products, I don't know what will, but it's just, we're seeing it on, on LTV, on AOV, and on any metric you can track. So something you, you bring up right now that I think is important, you mentioned at the end, is for specific products. Like makeup is emotional, right? There is an emotional attachment to the makeup. It's how you look. It's, you know, it's what you're sharing with the world. So like, I'll give you an example. I've, wear, I've been wearing hats like crazy. I have a 30, but we just had a kid. And so I haven't been able to go to the, uh, to the barber. And so my wife's like, well, why do you want to go get a haircut so bad? I don't get a haircut that often. And I'm like, I get it every four weeks. And I said, well, this is like, this is my makeup, right? If my hair is like feels bushy or something, it, it makes me feel like shit. And so there is that kind of emotional connection. I think this is also a, um, it's almost a like pushing brands to understand their customer better because I think they're still kind of, you said spray and pray down at the, uh, at the life cycle level. It's at the acquisition level too. Like people are just kind of like, well, we'll just acquire whoever the fuck we acquire. And it'll, there's not kind of this very direct correlation between, hey, this is who we are. This is why we matter. And this is how we're going to market and then pull them in and say, okay, well, we've probably still acquired into the funnel 30% of people that we don't fucking want because they're not for us. And you need to almost add more friction in there. And so it's like, you need friction at the messaging perspective. So you're testing a bunch of different ways to communicate with them and then bring them in and, and pull them through like that. But no one's focusing on that because again, let's just get them through purchase as quickly as possible. So I think we need to start posting about good friction I have seen it on even on the B2B side. You ask enough questions, you put enough steps in the onboarding phase and people will fall out. And those people who fell out are not incremental. And so you want to add that in. And we used to have like a, a wide open door. And man, you I would just watch sessions and you hit them up and they're like, I didn't know what to do. I'm like, well, there's a bunch of China. I have stuff here that you can click on that will show you what to do. And it's like, okay, well, we added the stuff in and you start seeing like oh they can do they can actually get through this they know what to do it's not difficult for them and those people referring their friends posting about it on social really excited to reach out and say this is amazing a lot of those people will hit me up on like dm me on twitter like this is so sick i can't believe this you know this can do this this technology exists so i think we're gonna have to push good friction because that's um that's kind of i think the, the next phase for a lot of these brands rather than optimizing for like conversion right away, it's optimizing for the right kind of conversion. I mean, Chase, it's also uh, the days of, don't say it, Facebook arbitrage are have been way too good. Have been way too good for brands to be able to just focus on like, I'll put in a dollar and get six. And I think those days have trained most of the market of our generation to think about just focus on acquisition retention will be somebody else's problem. And I, I cannot tell you being on the retention side of things and 
doing some consulting for retention, I cannot tell you the amount of brands that come to me saying like, our growth is insane and our acquisition is crazy cheap. We just need to figure out retention. And I almost never have, never have the heart to say like, honey, it's too late, right? It's like, you're building a brand of people that have zero interest in your product. You just gave them a 60% off deal. It's like, you can't have one guy to come in and fix your retention. Like it's not... And it's, it's a shame because so many consultants are very good grifters and they're very good at showing this idea that if you fix your, you know, your flows, then all of a sudden your retention issue is fixed. And it's like, it's everything. It's every single part of the customer journey and it's finding the right customers. And it's, it's not a cop-out. It's just how things are. But I think those, you know, the, the arbitrage days are, are on their last leg. So I think we're going to see a, a dramatic shift in the way people think about growth and retention. And yeah. frankly, I'm sad to see some of these kind of more sketch brands slowly degrade but i i'm from from a customer perspective i'm excited to see a lot more intentional marketing so yeah i think there's absolutely going to be it yeah the days of like we said dr- put a drop shipping store from alibaba and just hammer ads and then get an exit in like you know six months or put your stuff on the shopify uh you know the shopify site to get bought or that's over okay so we're, we're close to the end I, i'd like to go kind of a little more philosophical here. So I was calling it rapid fire when we first started, but uh, I don't, you know, you see, you're, you're talking to me in a very lugubrious way that I speak. So uh, this is not rapid fire. This is philosophical fire. What's in the skill you feel like has served you best over this journey? Kind of starting, you know, learning about all of this world and, and uh, across Reddit to be able to, you know, be here as a senior director at Jones Road. Obsession. I think I'm, I'm really obsessed. Uh, and when I come across something, I... You know, the, the downside of that is if I'm not interested in something, you can you can tell me 900 times and I won't figure it out. Like, I've heard a thousand great things about reading fiction. I've never really read fiction other than Harry Potter as a kid. Um, but the things I'm obsessed with, like travel, I, I go all in. CX is something I'm obsessed with. Retention is something I'm obsessed with. And I think that's been my, my biggest unlock is just obsessing. So since we're on the topic of travel, where's been your favorite place you visited? So... It's always a tough one because I think that the the caveat is like there's there's quite a few, but I think the the my hot take is that the places that most Americans go to are wildly overrated, like Paris and Rome. Skip it and go to Budapest and Prague instead. I absolutely love the the gems. Like I thought Belgrade, Serbia was fantastic. I thought Skopje, Macedonia was fantastic. And then obviously there's the classics, like Bali's beautiful, uh, Singapore's great. Two biggest culture shocks I've ever had are Beijing, China, and shocker because I'm Jewish and spoke Hebrew, but Israel was such a wild culture shock. The Middle East in general is such a culture shock uh, for a gentle American. Um, you just get tossed right into it, but yeah. Yeah, I feel that. I um place i love is uh the, the there's this area called the lubron valley in uh, in provence which is like just a bunch of little villages and it's super quiet and like i thought i you know i'd like it but i anyway very emotional every time i think about it the other one is you've talked about so i'm I've, i went to the middle east every summer when i was a kid um tehran and it is just wild um yeah those two culture shops you talked about i used to go to china for work a lot too and it's you do not expect what what you get there so yeah totally I hear fantastic things about Tehran. I, I've been wanting to go for forever. I hear off the charts thing about the food and the people. And I think, yeah, yeah that's been my, that's on my top 10 list since as long uh, as I can remember. Yeah, all, all over Iran. Um, I mean, frankly, I, I say this about everywhere. It's like everywhere is beautiful. It's just kind of like 
are you willing to do the work? Mm-hmm. There's not a single place that you won't enjoy if you're like open-minded and willing to do the work to, to go there. It's just, what are we sold to? So everyone sold Paris and Rome, right? Yeah. Great places, but like it's, it's homogenized so, uh, and, and commoditized. So yeah, those places are incredible. Tehran, people, food, culture, just it's a, it's a very special place. Uh, I wish more people were able to go. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh gosh, that's a good question. I mean, something that's pretty silly, but I, I think I tell this to myself very, very often is believe in myself more. I think I've, I've, you know, imposter syndrome coming from a non-traditional background. I've, I've always been surprised and shocked with how fat, like how far I've gotten at the, you know, like I, I thought I'd eventually crack it. I thought it would take another 10 years. And I think I've, I've never fully believed that the thing I was preaching would actually be, you know, something people would be excited about and receptive to. So believe in myself more is, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I think more people need to hear that. I'm, I uh, again from uh, Ron's behest. I'm listening. I'm uh, reading "Winning" by uh, Tim Grover, who like uh, coached Kobe and, and Michael Jordan. And essentially, he said the thing that was each of those guys' superpowers was their unshakable belief in themselves, being the best person to you know lead or do what they're supposed to do. And it's really hard. Like you think about those guys and you're like, okay, like that's a supernatural ability. Like most people don't live in that world and you almost have to coax that out of yourself. So I think that's, yeah, it's really, thank you for sharing that. It's important for people to believe in themselves more. Okay. The last one, what should people who are like listening to this and just starting out think about? So you brought up obsession. And I think that's a really important one. And like all the different things you've learned over time, what should someone, a 23 year old, 22 year old coming out of school who wants to get into maybe not D to C, maybe not CX, but just wants to do something that matters to them and that they feel you know, passionate enough to become obsessed with? How do you, how will you frame that up for them? I think the most important thing is understanding that there's, it's never linear. I think that, you know, obviously I had a, a, a strong, a strong awakening to that um, because of my background, but I think it's every single job I've gotten, every success I've ever had has been non-linear. It's been connecting the dots and going through a third door. And I think that is something that that is so, so unspoken about when it comes to people graduating from a great college, top of their class, and then you realize that nobody in the world gives a shit about your bachelor's degree. And I think it's it's a it's a rude awakening for people to spend forty five thousand dollars a year on on education. But I think it's the expectation that you'll come out of college and have this free and easy ride to wherever you want to be. That's number one. The second thing I'd say is always be open to rethink your beliefs. I think people, you know, people can be in the same, like, oh, I'm a CX person because I've done it for 20 years, or I'm a growth person because I've done it for 20 years. And they're never open to questioning their beliefs. And maybe they're not a growth person. It's what they thought their dad would be proud of them doing, right? And I think that's something that always stuck out to me is if I listened to my dad, I'd be selling mortgages right now. And frankly, I'd probably do well. I'd probably make nice money because you can you know, you can make a couple hundred K if you're successful, but it's not me. I'm not a salesperson. But if I, if I listened to my parents, I'd be in sales and I'd probably hate my life. So I think always questioning beliefs and being open to learning something new is, is, you know, my, my second big one. Yeah. I think that's, uh, it's fascinating because it kind of ties to that. What you said was the, like what you learned, which is believe in yourself more is uh question things and believe in yourself more kind of run in tandem. Um, and so if you don't believe in yourself, you're not going to question things enough to go and do the things or, you know, recalibrate, et cetera. So I think those are all, yeah, these are all awesome. I have one more thing. 
I have one yeah. more thing. Um, an exciting one. That this is something I've been thinking about over the last couple of days and I think is, is not spoken about enough. And uh, I'm very passionate about it is that it's so much harder to unlearn than it is to learn. I think about that when you hire somebody with a decade plus of experience in something and then they come and just replicate the same thing and you're like, that's not at all what I want. It's why I've been incredibly excited about hiring people that have no background in CX. I've hired a special ed teacher. I've hired arguably a flight attendant, you can say is very strong experience, but I, I've, I've hired people. I'm more excited about hiring people that have no experience because I think it's easier to learn than it is to unlearn. So I think that's another leg up for somebody in their twenties is it's very easy to learn. Like we all don't know what the fuck we're doing. So, yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you that is going into growth after being a filmmaker. Like what, what experience yeah. was it to do? I have? Like what experience with spreadsheet? Let's go fucking teach yourself stuff. And essentially you're willing to ask the question that no one else is because you kind of don't know. So it's that, 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 that naivete of a child, right? You're not, yep. you're only willing to ask questions when you're not jaded about stuff. Most people are jaded and they're like, oh, I know how to do this. And like, by the way, every single time I've ever done that in my life, I get, I get fucked, like legitimately. Yeah. When you stop asking <laughs> questions um, and you just kind of go with the status quo. And the minute I started just like needling people and being obsessed with like, hey, why, 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 why? It's like good things happen because you uncover things that you can be unique at because you're asking the question and you're like, oh, there's the blue ocean that's mine that will belong to me that will make me special in the situation. So yes, do different things and uh, cross training is super important. Like all growth people should go and do CX work. All CX people should go and think about growth. Like everyone should be cross training with every department. I think that's going to be our course, Eli. We're going to teach people how to cross train. That's that. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna sell that. Twitter's going to go crazy. I'm I'm about it. Yeah. All right. Well, I really appreciate your time. Everyone's really lucky to learn from you. Thank you for being so open with your story and the journey. Um, where should people find you, and um, how should people uh, get uh, get in on the newsletter? Thank you so much. It's great to be here, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen. I'm at Eli Weiss with an extra S, so it's E L I W E I S S S on Twitter. The newsletter is eli.behive.com. And you can always shoot me a DM if you have any questions. Great. Great. Well, really appreciate it. Thanks. I hope we can do it again soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ad Creative from Pencil. We hope you enjoyed our chat and learned a thing or two that can help you grow your business and think more creatively. If you have someone you think we should interview, just hit me up on Twitter. Also, a small favor. If you could please share and review this, we want our guests' amazing insights to reach as much of the community as possible, and your ratings help. Till next time, add some creativity into your life. Thanks.